If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 14. It's page 827 in the church Bibles. There's a Bible in the rack in front of you. Rachel read for us the passage we're going to be looking at today, Mark 14, verses 12 to 26. We're not going to read back through the passage again. But what we're going to do is this passage describes for us the events of the Last Supper in which Jesus instituted a ceremony, a ritual, a rite that all Christians everywhere since this night in Mark 14 have celebrated. Now it's hard to get any group of people to agree on anything, but all Christians everywhere since the time Jesus instituted have been celebrating a ceremony we get to do today. It's often called communion. Sometimes we call it the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist. These are all different names for the same thing. And one of the real amazing, powerful things about this ceremony that we're going to participate in today is how full it is with theological meaning and how much God can communicate to us through this. So what we're going to do today is we want to look and understand better some of the theological themes and ideas that God has imbued this ceremony with. So that as we participate and celebrate, it wouldn't just simply be tradition or ritual or something that we do regularly. But again, God would speak to us afresh and anew through this ceremony that Jesus instituted and commanded all of us to participate in. So we're going to be focusing in Mark 14, not on the whole passage, you've already heard that read, but on what we know of, or what we call the words of the institution. We call them the words of the institution. These are the words that Jesus spoke to institute communion. And they're in verses 22 and 23, sorry, 22 to 24. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Those are the words of the institution as recorded in Mark's gospel. Now, for some of you, maybe you've been around Calvary Church for a long time. We do this ceremony very regularly. The words that Jesus says at the Last Supper, as you've heard them read in Mark, may sound slightly different than the words you may hear me say when we celebrate this together. And that's because so important is what Jesus has said here that these words are recorded four different times in the New Testament. And they're all slightly different. Huh, here they are, if I can get to them. Nope, we're doing it together, aren't we? All right, there we go. So you have what you have in Mark's gospel. In Luke's gospel, sorry, in Matthew's gospel, it says Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, saying, drink from it, all of you. 
This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then in 1 Corinthians, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The main ideas are the same in all four passages, but the wording is slightly different. And the question is why? Why do four different gospel authors under the inspiration of the Spirit record Jesus' words slightly differently? The answer is because each one is emphasizing certain themes or things in in the words that Jesus said. And so this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at Mark's presentation of Jesus' words. And I'd like to share with you four themes or ideas that Mark appears to be highlighting in what it was that Jesus said when he instituted this ceremony for us to celebrate today. Now this is a little more of a teaching. So I invite you to take your notes if you'd like. And follow along, we're going to be sort of filling out a chart together as we go through four themes that Mark emphasizes or highlights. The first theme is that of salvation. And each one of these themes has something in the Bible that it points back to. And this one points back to Passover. What is Passover? Let me explain that to you. Before I do, the night in which Mark 14 happens, Mark says, was a Passover meal. They were celebrating Passover. What was that? Well, in the Old Testament, the most important redemptive, salvific, salvation-oriented event was God rescuing the children of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. They're in slavery in Egypt, and God sends Moses to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go so they can come and worship me. Pharaoh says, no, I don't think I'm going to. He hardens his heart and refuses to obey the Lord. And so God performs 10 miraculous plagues, each one worse than the one before, until you get to the 10th and final plague, which is the death of the firstborn. And God says, I'm going to send an angel of death through the land of Egypt, and he will kill the firstborn in every household. God says to the children of Israel, and to anyone who's willing, sacrifice a lamb, Take the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorframe of your house. The reason you do that is because when the angel of death sees the blood, he will pass over your house and instead of death, 
you will receive life and you will be saved from the power of death. So important is this that God says to the children of Israel, those who put the blood on the doorpost, while the angel of death is passing over, you need to be inside your house and you need to be celebrating together God has given you life. And this is the institution of Passover, an annual Jewish celebration of the fact that God chose not to bring them death, but instead saved them and gave them life. And while they were inside eating, God gave them very specific instructions about the meal they were to eat. Most of those instructions have to do with the lamb and with the bread. Well, Mark says in Mark 14 that some 1,600 years later, after that 10th plague, after the death of the firstborn and the miraculous rescue of all those who put blood on their door, that Jesus gathered his disciples together and he chose that night to institute what we know of as communion. In the midst of that institution... Jesus takes some bread and he takes a cup. And both of those things he infuses with some symbolism. The bread that he holds symbolizes the fellowship that the children of Israel had been having. When the angel of death was passing over them, they were eating a meal together. And when Jesus takes bread, it is a reminder that those who have put their faith in Christ do not do so alone. That we're part of a community of faith and that we experience that fellowship together. The cup symbolizes, Jesus says, this is the blood. This is the blood that was placed on the doorposts and on the mantle. And in the Old Testament at Passover, God rescued the nation of Israel from the power of Egypt. And what Jesus is saying is that like that, but on a far greater scale, those who place their faith in Jesus will have Jesus' blood metaphorically applied to us in such a way that the angel of death will pass over us. Death has lost its grip. It has no claim over us. And so the first theme that Jesus reminds us of in this celebration is that of salvation, that God through Jesus has saved us from Satan, sin, and death. And he's given us fellowship with those who are being saved. The second theme is God with us. God's presence with us. This points back to Mount Sinai. So back at that event, on the night of the 10th plague, when the angel of death passed over the houses of the children of Israel, God saved them from death. He brought them out of Egypt with a mighty arm. He led them to the Red Sea, took them through, miraculously through the Red Sea, which was symbolic of them moving from death into life. He brought them to Mount Sinai. There he gathered them together and he made a covenant with them. Now, covenant is just sort of a Bible word for promise or an agreement 
or a contract. And he said, here's the deal of the contract. The contract that God made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai was, God agreed to be their God, to provide for them, to take care of them, to protect them, to watch over them. Israel agreed that they would keep the Ten Commandments. These were the two sides of the contract. God says, if you're willing and you want to enter into this agreement, I will be your God. I will be with you always. Your job is to keep these 10 rules. Israel got together as a nation and they voted. And they said, well, we want to sign the contract. We want to establish this relationship. Now, back in those days, when you wanted to have a contract, you didn't call a lawyer and have papers drawn up and sign them. That's a valid way to have a contract. That's just not how they did it back then. What you did back then to sign a contract is you use blood. And so God has Moses sacrifice some animals, takes the blood from the sacrifice, and the first thing Moses does is he sprinkles some of the blood on the altar which represents God. That's God signing his name to the contract. He then takes the other half of the blood and he sprinkles it on the people which represents them signing their part to the contract. And Moses says when he does it, this is the blood of the covenant. This is the blood that signs the contract. And at that point, a relationship is established between God and the children of Israel. God promises to be with them. The children of Israel promise to obey the Ten Commandments. Well, the very first thing that God does after the contract is signed, the blood's not even dried yet. He calls Moses up the mountain. He says, well, we got to make provision so that I can be with you. And so what God gives to Moses is a design for a particular tent in which God can live. The Israelites live in tent. God's like, well, I'll live in a tent with you. The tent is called the tabernacle. And God gives to Moses plans for what that tent's supposed to look like. And the very first thing that God tells Moses he's supposed to have built is the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence. God's going to build a tent. He's going to put this thing that represents his presence because, remember, his side of the deal is he's going to be with them always. The second thing that God has Moses build is a table. And on the table, God commands that bread is placed every day. It's called the bread of the presence. And it represents God being present with the children of Israel. Jesus, when he takes the cup, says this cup, look at it, verse 24, this is my what? Blood of the covenant. This represents the fact that a covenant agreement, a contract, has been signed between those who believe in Jesus and God the Father. But what Jesus is referring to is not the contract from Mount Sinai. That was the contract that God signed with the children of Israel. What Jesus is referring to, Paul and Luke make it a little more explicit, is a new contract, a new covenant spelled out for us among other places in Jeremiah. Jeremiah's in the Old Testament. It's looking forward to us today. And this is what God said. 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new contract with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Why not? Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. In other words, their half of the deal was keep the Ten Commandments. Literally within days of signing the contract, they break that. And they continue to break it over and over and over again. And so finally at some point God says, you know what? I'm ripping up the deal. I kept my half. You never once kept your half. I'm ripping up the deal. I'm making a new deal, a new contract. And this are the terms of the new contract. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. And here it is. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The new feature of this contract, God's still promising to be present. He's still promising to provide and to protect and to have people be able to know him in even new and deeper ways. The difference is, there's nothing for you and I to do. There's nothing in that God. There's no Ten Commandments. There's no agreements to obey. There's no rules. God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And here's the covenant. I'm going to choose out of my own gracious kindness to take all your sins and all my sins and simply remember them no more. Jesus says, the cup and the bread, they're referring to this. So what does the cup, or what does the bread symbolize? God's presence. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In just a minute, you're going to get a wafer. And if you participate, you're going to take that wafer, you're going to eat it. And where's it going to go? Inside of you. That's a symbol for the fact that God, through this new covenant, is now present with us, in us, through his spirit. What does the cup represent? It's the blood of the covenant. The fact that God signed the deal with Jesus' blood. That God has promised on the life of his son that he will remember our sins no more and that he will be our God and that he will always be with us for all of eternity. Third theme is the idea that one suffers to serve many. This points not so much to something from the Old Testament, though it does. It's really pointing back to some stuff that comes in Mark's gospel earlier. Jesus says in Mark 14, where we are, verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for what? For many. Jesus took one piece of bread and he broke it 12 ways and gave it to 12 people. He took one cup and shared it with 12 different individuals. And he says, this is for many. That's a reference to Mark chapter 10. Where Jesus is telling his disciples that the son of man, that's him, has been asked by God the Father to suffer and to die for all people. That suffering, Jesus says, is symbolized 
with a cup. He says to the disciples, can you drink the cup I've been asked to drink? That represents Jesus' suffering because, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he's saying here is that Jesus is choosing to suffer for many. Well, the cup represents that suffering. What about the bread? Well, Jesus takes one loaf and feeds 12. But that reminds us there were some other times where Jesus took small amounts of food and fed lots of people. One time, he took some food and fed 5,000 people. That's Mark chapter 6. Another time, he took some food and fed 4,000 people. The interesting thing is, both times, Jesus asks the same question to start the process. And the question is, how much bread do you have? He takes the bread that they have, and in the first case, five loaves, also two fish, and he uses that to feed 5,000. In the second case, seven loaves and some unnamed number of fish, and he uses that to feed the 4,000. The powerful thing is in the first case in Mark 6, it's primarily a Jewish audience in a Jewish context. And at the end of feeding 5,000, there are 12 baskets of food left over, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. In the second context, it's in a primarily Gentile context. And at the end of feeding 4,000, there are seven baskets representing the completeness or the wholeness of the whole world. And that Jesus is saying his suffering is so that Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, young and old, religious and irreligious, can all participate and be saved. And so what does the, oops. What does the bread represent? All people. All people. Everybody in the world eats bread. What does the cup represent? Jesus' suffering. That one person suffering wins salvation for every tribe, tongue, language, gender, kind of person there is. Fourth and final theme, that of hospitality, compassion, and invitation. This also points back to those two miraculous feedings in Mark's gospel, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. In both cases, Jesus is the one who takes the initiative to invite people to come and eat. He's like, look at all these people. They must be hungry. Let's feed them. And the disciples are like, let them find food on their own. And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's not how the heart of God works. And it says he has compassion on them in both cases. And he invites them to sit down so that they might be fed. Likewise in Mark 14. Jesus is the one who's made the preparations for the Passover supper. He's the one who is providing this meal. He's the one who takes the bread and the cup. This is why we call it the Lord's Supper because he's the one who is offering hospitality to his disciples. Likewise, he is the one who offered hospitality on the basis of compassion to the 5,000 and to the 4,000. And the idea here is, is that God is inviting us to come and be part of his family. It's hospitality. Now the interesting tie to me between this 
and those two feeding stories. Do you see in verse 22? Do you see where it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, do you see that given thanks part? Look down in verse 23. Can you find it again? When he had given thanks? The first one, they're both translated the same in English, but they're two different Greek words. Now, you can translate them both given thanks, but they mean slightly different things. In verse 22, that, that first one had given thanks. That's the Greek word eulogeo. You may hear that in the word eulogy. It means to bless, to speak a blessing. The second word is the word eucharisto, which is what we get the term Eucharist when we call this the Eucharist. It simply means to give thanks. When Jesus picks up the bread, he blesses it. When he picks up the cup, he gives thanks. Now the powerful thing is back in Mark 6, when Jesus takes the food and gets ready to feed 5,000, he blesses it. And in Mark 8, when he picks up the food to give thanks, he gives thanks for it. Eulogeo and Eucharisto. And Jesus seems to be referring to the fact that when you come to communion, there's two more symbols going on here. The bread represents the blessings of God. That God didn't tear up the contract with Israel because he wanted to punish everybody. That all that disobedience of Israel with the Ten Commandments, God's goal was to bless. The reason why God wants to be present with us is to bless us, to pour out his goodness and his grace. And the bread represents the fact that God is inviting us into his house for blessing. And the cup represents the fact that our proper response is to say thank you. This is how hospitality works, isn't it? When you're invited to someone's house, they make a meal to serve you so that you might be blessed. And what's the proper response? Thank you. And so the fourth theme is hospitality, compassion, invitation. So in just a minute, we're going to celebrate communion. As you take this bread and hold this cup, I want you to think about the fact that God has infused this ceremony with such rich meaning that number one, it's a reminder that we have been saved from death, that God has rescued us from Satan, sin, and death. Number two, that God has promised to be with us always and that no matter what we do, he will remember our sins no more. That Jesus himself chose to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we might have life. And whether you've been around church a long time or this is your very first Sunday, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, whether you're rich or poor, whether you've tried to be obedient or haven't been obedient, Jesus' suffering is for all people. And that God, out of his own compassion, is inviting you to participate in his family. So, on behalf of God, I would like to extend an invitation to any who are here who are not yet believers in Jesus. This is what Jesus did. 
He died so that you don't have to. He gave his life so that God would be with you always. He chose to suffer so that you might be blessed. And you're invited into God's family. 